Today's podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program, but only for those ready to switch today. Go to netsuite.com slash gold. The podcast is also sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. When I recorded my last podcast on Tuesday evening, Earlier that day, the government released the producer price numbers for October, and we got an increase of 0.6 tenths of 1%, which was pretty much in line with estimates. The year-over-year increase was 8.6, which was a record high going back to the beginning of this series. Not really sure when they started keeping track of it in this matter, but it doesn't have that long a history. But that was the highest in whatever the history was. But, you know, I also pointed out that the numbers were worse because if you annualize the first 10 months of the year, producer prices were increasing at a 10% clip, which is even higher than that 8.6%. But more importantly, I warned that consumers could not expect producers to basically keep taking these bullets in that they were not really passing on the total effect of the increase in costs that they were experiencing to the consumer because the year-over-year increase in consumer prices was only about 6%. So there was a big gap between what consumers were paying retail and what businesses were paying wholesale and that eventually that gap would be closed. And my thought was that we would start to see it as soon as the next CPI number, which was released on Wednesday. Now, as it turned out, my podcast that I recorded Tuesday night didn't actually get uploaded until Wednesday morning. And in fact, I think it came out within a half hour of the release of the CPI number for October. Now, again, I have been taking the over in the CPI numbers all year. And basically, there was only one month now out of 10 where I would have lost that bet, meaning that the actual CPI number came out below the official estimates. The consensus estimate for October was for a rise of 0.5%, which would have been slightly hotter than the 0.4% in the prior month. Well, the actual number came out at up 0.9%, almost double the estimate, more than double the increase from the prior month and well above the upper end of the consensus range. The low end of the range was for an increase of 0.4. The upper end was an increase of 0.7. So 0.7 is the biggest number anybody thought was possible for October. Instead, we got 0.9%. Now, the number that made all the headline was the year-over-year increase, which as of last month was 5.4%. The consensus was that in October, it would notch up to 5.8. Instead, we vaulted all the way to 6.2%. Now, that is the highest 
year-over-year increase in consumer prices in 31 years. And that's what everybody's been talking about is that more than three-decade high in year-over-year prices. Now, stripping out food and energy, the so-called core, that was supposed to rise by 0.4, came out at 0.6 increase. Again, 50% above estimates, triple the previous month where the core rose just 0.2. And again, above the upper range, which went from a low of up 0.2 to a high of up 0.5. And on a year-over-year basis, core CPI now up 4.6%. That's a full 0.6% above the prior month's year-over-year core, which was 4.0, and above the 4.3% that had been estimated. Again, above the upper end of the consensus, which ranged from a low of up 4.1 to a high of up 4.4. Now remember, this is the Fed's preferred measure, right? Because we're stripping out the volatile food and energy and we're getting down to the core, right? 4.6, that is more than double the official 2% target. Even their new target where they're targeting slightly above 2%. Well, if slightly above 2% is 2.2, which would be 10% more than two. 4.6 is more than double, slightly above two, even when you strip out food and energy. Of course, when you include food and energy, which you have to include because most Americans eat, most Americans use energy. And so if you actually look at the headline number, we're now triple the Fed's 2% target. Now, there's a lot of stuff that I want to say about these inflation numbers. Let me get started, though, by looking at the annualized increase for the first 10 months of this year. Because if you look at how much consumer prices are up from January through October, they're already up 5.85%. We still have two more months to go for the year. So assuming that the average pace continues for the next two months, we just annualize the first 10 months for a 12-month year, we get a 7% increase in consumer prices. So that's even scarier than the 6.2% number that's making the headlines. In fact, let's take a look at all of the individual monthly numbers that we've received so far this year because that 0.9% ties June for the worst inflation number of the year. Worst meaning the highest, 0.9, because we got a 0.9 increase in June. So anybody who thinks these high numbers are transitory, they would have to change their tune based on the fact that we're already 10 months into the year and we've got the highest monthly increase in the CPI for the year. In fact, let's go back and look at how the year unfolded. We started off in January with a 0.3% rise. And that 0.3% is the low watermark for the year. Now, we tied that in August. We got another 0.3. That is the lowest number we've had for the entire year. So even if you annualize that, you're talking about an inflation rate that's above the Fed's 2% target. And I think August, that was the only month where the CPI came out 
below estimates because in January, the estimate was probably 0.1 or 0.2. I forget what it was, but we came out at 0.3 and it was uphill from there. We got 0.4 in February. We got 0.6 in March. Then we got 0.8 in April. We had a small pause in May back down to 0.6, which was still a pretty hot number. It was the same one we had in March. Then we spiked up to 0.9 in June. Then we got a little relief. We came down to 0.5. Then 0.3 in August, we tied that low number. September, back up to 0.4. And now in October, we soar all the way back up to 0.9. Now, if you look at the string of numbers, is there anything about these numbers that suggests that it's transitory? that the bump that we saw early in the year, because when we first saw January, February, March, April, we got those hot numbers, that's when the Fed was like, oh, don't worry about it, it's all transitory. Well, if that were the case, wouldn't we have transitioned back down to low numbers by now? The fact that the number in October, 10 months into the year, is as bad as it was in June and is worse than anything we had earlier in the year, that in and of itself proves that these numbers are not transitory. And of course, what's even more shocking, or at least not to me, but it should be shocking to the general public or the media, is that despite this, the Fed has not altered its tune by one note. The Fed is still clinging to the same narrative that inflation is transitory. Their policy has not been altered at all. They finally started the taper, but basically they've been saying all year that they would start the taper by the end of this year. They've also been saying all year that it wasn't appropriate to raise interest rates, that interest rates would not move above zero until after the Fed had finished tapering their asset purchase program down to zero, meaning that they would have to bring quantitative easing to a halt before they even considered the first rate hike, which they're not even considering yet. But that's what they were saying at the beginning of the year or at the end of last year when they still believed that inflation was transitory. Well, clearly it's not. The data has contradicted everything the Fed had forecast when they had that monetary policy, when they strategized that they would have this slow, steady reduction in quantitative easing, and then only long after quantitative easing had come to an end would they finally start to raise interest rates slowly. Why haven't they changed their policy stance in light of the fact that they were completely wrong on inflation? See, if the Fed was honest, what they would be saying right now is, oh my God, we were completely wrong. God, did we get this wrong? We couldn't have been more wrong. We were completely blindsided by these inflation numbers. We thought inflation was transitory and we couldn't have been more wrong, right? Our models totally screwed up. You know, we're human. What are we going to do? We made a big mistake, but now we need to make up for that mistake. We need to get real aggressive because we're dealing with an inflation problem that we never expected. And given this unexpected surge of inflation, well, we're going to change our policy because when the facts change, we change. That is not what the Fed is saying. The Fed is basically doubling down 
on its theory that this is transitory. I mean, all they're willing to concede is that this transitory period is going to last longer than they thought, but their monetary policy has not been adjusted at all in light of all this new information. And what that really suggests to me is that the Fed is not necessarily surprised by these numbers, that they maybe expected high inflation numbers all along and just lied and pretended it was transitory because that is an explanation that makes sense because now they're being confronted with all this data which contradicts what they said and would argue for a change of policy Well, if the Fed expected these numbers all along, yet continued that reckless monetary policy anyway, well, then it makes sense that they're not changing course because they knew that this was where we were headed. They just didn't want to admit it. Yet despite this obvious conclusion, nobody is calling the Fed out. Everybody is accepting their explanation that inflation is transitory and that none of this data, even though it's much worse than what the Fed forecast, that none of it means that the Fed actually has to make any policy adjustments, that despite the fact that they were so completely wrong, we can continue on the monetary policy course that was set based on a completely different inflation situation unfolding. The answer is the line at the DMV watching paint dry and a dead turtle. The question is name three things faster than QuickBooks. It sucks you in and slows you down with manual processes, integration difficulties, and glitchy delays that leave you scrambling for the numbers you need. Now is the time to make the switch to NetSuite by Oracle, the number one financial system, because NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time, no matter how big your business grows. Failing to switch to NetSuite will leave you stuck trying to make sense of your books while your competitors are sprinting ahead. 93% of businesses surveyed increased their visibility and control after switching to NetSuite. And now special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program, but only for those ready to switch today. So head to netsuite.com slash gold right now. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash gold. netsuite.com slash gold. Now circling back to this headline number, this 6.2% year-over-year number that made all the news headlines as the worst inflation in three decades, And really, they should be talking about 7% because, again, that's what you get when you annualize the first 10 months of the year. So, But we won't actually have that number for another two months. And, of course, if we end up with a couple of more hot numbers like the one that we just got in October, we could end up with more than 7% for the entire year of 2021. But when they're talking about the highest inflation in 30 years, that's not really accurate because 30 years ago, we were measuring prices with a very different CPI than the one that we use to measure them today. So it really is not an apples to apple comparison when you look at the numbers we get using the current CPI and compare that to the numbers that you get using the older CPI. I mean, one example, I've been talking about this 
for months on this podcast, probably years, is owner's equivalent rent versus actual rent because back 30 years ago, we used rent. Now we don't use rent. We use owner's equivalent rent. And according to the government, owner's equivalent rent is up 3.1% year over year. But actual rents are up something like 12%. So the rents that people pay are increasing four times as fast as the rents that the government pretends that people pay for the purpose of calculating the CPI. And rent is the single biggest component of the CPI. It's about a third of the index. Obviously, we are dramatically understating the increase in rents. And of course, the increase of housing costs, if you are buying a home, home prices are up about 20%. So it's a lot more expensive to buy a home relative to a year ago than it is to rent one. But the government's number, this 3.1% year-over-year increase, bears no resemblance to what's actually happening and is really artificially suppressing the CPI because rents are actually rising faster than the headline, not slower. So rents should be worsening inflation. Instead, according to the government, rents are helping to make inflation appear lower than what it actually is. But the biggest changes were implemented in the late 1990s following the Boskin report. And I've talked about that on this podcast, but again, I've got a lot of new listeners and they may not be familiar with the way the government rigged the CPI in the late 1990s, but the Boskin report came out in 1996. It was commissioned by the government to study the CPI. And the conclusion of the Boskin report was that the CPI overstated inflation by 1.1% per year. Now, how they could figure this out is beyond me, but it's obvious that the Boskin Commission was convened specifically to come to this conclusion. That's why they got this together. They wanted to change the CPI because they wanted the inflation number to be lower. I mean, think about the bias that's inherent in the government changing the way inflation is measured. Because first of all, the government creates the inflation, right? It's a two-part process. It's a partnership between the government and the Federal Reserve where the government spends a lot of money. They run deficits. And then the Federal Reserve monetizes those deficits by printing money and buying bonds, a process we now call quantitative easing. But nobody really talked about quantitative easing back then. But that is the mechanism where inflation was created. So you have the government creating inflation, which of course is a bad thing from the perspective of the public, right? Because it makes the cost of living go up. So the government is creating inflation and then reporting to the public how bad inflation is. Well, obviously the government doesn't want to report bad inflation, right? It'd be like if we allowed our children to grade their own uh, report cards, right? You know, they're bringing home the report cards to their parents Obviously, I mean, the kids don't want to bring home C's and D's. They want to bring home A's and B's. So if we let the kids grade their own report cards, would we be shocked that people came home with straight A's? No, which is why we don't let the kids grade their own report card. We rely on the teacher to be more honest in the grading. But that's not the case with the inflation numbers. My father always used the analogy of 
commissioning the mafia to do a study on crime and how much crime there is in a particular community. And if there was a lot of crime, well, then we would need more police. Well, would anybody be shocked if the mafia did a study on the amount of crime and it came back and it said, hey, there's no crime. In fact, we don't even need as many police as we already have. We could take some of the police off the job because the crime rate is so low. I mean, obviously, if the mafia is committing crime, they have a vested interest in having fewer cops on the beat so it's easier for them to get away with their criminal activity. Well, that is what happened with the Boskin report. This conclusion was self-serving. The government benefited dramatically from these findings because as a result of the Boskin report, they changed the methodology for calculating inflation. And it is not a coincidence that in the 20 years or so since they fixed the CPI, and they really fixed it, right? The fix was in. But in these 20 years, now all of a sudden we have the era of low inflation. In fact, we've actually had inflation so low that the government has complained that it's too low, that we now have a Federal Reserve pursuing a policy to produce more inflation because apparently we don't have enough based on this CPI that the government rigged. Oh, how convenient. Now, how did the government change it? Well, the two biggest changes happened right away. The first one was in 1998. And that one had to do with quality improvements. So the government argued that things were getting better and therefore they really should be cheaper. And one of the examples was computers because every year, right, they made computers faster. They were more powerful, right? The chips had more memory and they improved the speed. And so the government said, well, this is the same thing as a price cut because quality going up and price staying the same, well, you're getting more for your money. So we're just going to pretend that the price went down, even though it didn't. And so we're going to put that into the CPI. But of course, that is nonsense because consumers aren't paying the lower price. Yes, they're getting higher quality, but the lower quality option is no longer available. They can't buy the older computer that wasn't as good and save money, they're forced to buy the computer of higher quality, even though they don't necessarily need those improvements. And just because the computer is a little bit faster and has a little bit more memory, it doesn't mean that you really benefit from those improvements. I mean, you may not need them. I mean, I always used to say, look, I mean, I can only type so fast into my computer, right? So just because the computer is faster, I'm not typing any faster. So the computer, to the extent that I'm using it to write stuff, my writing is not becoming more efficient. I'm not writing any faster on this improved computer than I wrote on the computer I had before. Yet somehow I'm being told that I'm saving money. But of course, all of these improvements, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity in determining the value of these improvements. But also, there are probably many circumstances where quality goes down instead of price going up, and the government doesn't even look at that. Oftentimes, companies substitute lower quality ingredients instead of raising price. Like I remember, I used to buy a certain type of dog food for my dog. And I bought this dog food because of the quality of the ingredients, right? They used whole meat. And then I remember 
looking at the same dog food and then they ended up using beef byproducts. So instead of using the real whole meat, they started using these byproducts, which were cheaper. And so what I ended up having to do was buy a different dog food that now had the same quality of ingredients as the one I used to buy, but that was more expensive. Well, the earlier company, rather than raising the price of the dog food, they just put cheaper ingredients into the dog food. I'm sure the government didn't look at that as a price hike, but it was a price hike for me because either I had to accept the lower quality or I had to buy a more expensive brand of dog food, which is what I ended up doing. But there's all sorts of ways that quality goes down. You use cheaper quality of materials. You know, the government keeps talking about how cars are getting better because they have more technology, which they do, but a lot of times the material, the leather quality is not nearly as good, or in many cases, you don't get leather, you get vinyl, right? There's a lot of things about a car where they've cut corners in the materials that are used so they're not as good quality as they were in the past. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Also, you know, a lot of times, and I've talked about this, stuff has to be assembled. You used to buy it and it was all put together, but now you got to assemble it yourself. Well, how much is your time worth? If you spend an hour or two putting something together, and yeah, it's a little cheaper, but now you have to assemble it yourself. I mean, I like to buy it when it's already assembled. The problem is it's being shipped all the way from China and it'd be too expensive to package it fully assembled. When we used to make the stuff ourselves, well, yeah, it was all assembled. You went to the store and you bought it. But since it's coming across the ocean in a container, it's got to be packaged uh, in a little box. And now I've got to do it all myself. You know, what about all these companies that now automate, and instead of getting an actual receptionist, you get put through a computerized voicemail system. I much prefer to talk to a human being, but I have to settle for a computer program. And I'm sure the government is not increasing the cost of the services that I'm buying because I have to deal with this frustrating automated system. No. So I think that there's a big bias towards assuming things are getting better so they can make downward adjustments to the CPI than acknowledging that they're getting worse so that they can make upward adjustments. And the other big change was in 1999, and that was substitution. And the argument there was, hey, you know, if the price of something goes up, it doesn't really mean that the consumer is paying that higher price because they may substitute for another good. For example, If the price of steak goes up, maybe consumers will eat chicken instead. So we should take steak out and just substitute in chicken. So in other words, let's get rid of the thing that went up in price and let's substitute something else that's a lower price. And therefore we can claim that prices didn't go up. 
Well, of course, prices went up. The fact that people are not buying something because it got more expensive, that's part of the problem with inflation. You can't just pretend that inflation didn't exist by saying, well, the people responded to higher prices by buying something cheaper. I mean, that's basically accepting a declining standard of living. I mean, think about it in its extreme situation. What if the price of chicken goes up so much that now people have to start eating dog food? Are you really going to say that there's no inflation? Hey, food prices aren't going up. Look, people are still eating. Okay, they're eating dog food, but they're eating, right? This is a bunch of nonsense. This is the stuff that the government wants us to believe, right? It's like a car. Let's say I used to buy a Mercedes and now cars are so expensive that I have to settle for a Hyundai, right? Are you going to say there's no inflation? Hey, I'm still driving. Look, I still have a car. And in fact, the whole idea that you would substitute something cheaper that you would prefer not to buy because the thing that you really want is now too expensive, that completely contradicts the whole idea about hedonic improvements where, oh no, we've got to lower the CPI when consumers higher quality. Well, substitution is the reverse. You're basically allowing people to substitute stuff of lower quality and you're using that to make the CPI look smaller. So the whole thing has been rigged. If we were measuring prices this year, in 2021, if we took the exact same CPI that we had 30 years ago and we measured prices, we would be well into the double digits. I'm sure we would be at least 15%, maybe more, maybe closer to 20. In fact, if you look at import-export prices, which are not massaged, the way these are, which are just the actual numbers, then that's about what you end up with. So this year, 2021, is pretty much as bad as any year in the 1970s. Maybe it's worse than any year of the 1970s, which explains a lot of stuff. It certainly explains why the public is so upset, why Joe Biden's approval numbers are so low Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Avast's award-winning antivirus stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Their data breach monitoring system enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. There's firewall protection to keep your personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer and steal your data. There's also ransomware protection that secures your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. It even speeds up your PC by optimizing the background activity of your apps. And you can use their smart scan to find and remove viruses and resolve the most common privacy and performance issues through one optimization scan. I've been using Avast myself for years and have been very happy with the results. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks each and every month with Avast One. So you can comfortably take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Biden's approval rating is just 42%. Right? That ties him with Gerald Ford 
for the second lowest approval rating one year into presidency. Now, the record holder is Donald Trump. His approval rating was at 35% after one year. But of course, the entire media was constantly bashing Trump. You had all of the major media outlets constantly trashing Trump, contributing to that low 35% support number. You don't have that at all with Joe Biden, right? Most of the mainstream media is very positive about Biden. And to the extent that they're not positive, they're at least neutral. They're not bashing Biden on a daily basis the way they were bashing Trump. Yet Biden is still at 42%. In fact, it's important to point out that Donald Trump's average approval rating for his entire presidency was 41. Biden is already down to 42. He still has three more years to beat Trump's record and to become the most unpopular president in history. And again, the only president that was that low was Gerald Ford. But it's important to point out that Gerald Ford was never elected president. He became president because Nixon resigned because he was going to be impeached. In fact, Gerald Ford wasn't even elected vice president. Spiro Agnew was Nixon's running mate. But what happened was Agnew was forced to resign his office. And then Richard Nixon picked Ford to become the next vice president. At the time, Gerald Ford was the minority leader in the House of Representatives. So Nixon nominated him and then Congress confirmed the nomination per the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. In fact, to this day, Gerald Ford is the only American to ever attain the office of vice president through that procedure. And what are the reasons that Ford's approval rating was so low was that he pardoned Richard Nixon, who everybody hated. And then Ford pardoned him and he was tied in to the Nixon administration. And so that's why his approval rating was so low. So if you throw out Ford because he wasn't elected and he wasn't reelected or he didn't get elected when he ran for office because his approval rating was so low, he was beat by Jimmy Carter. So it's not even fair to to include Gerald Ford because he wasn't elected and he didn't have the type of honeymoon that a new president would actually have. So if you throw him out, I mean, basically Biden is the second least popular president we've elected behind Trump. In fact, I'm going to look at some of these numbers. I pulled back and I'm just going back to Truman. So this is since the end of the Second World War. So not counting FDR, but Harry Truman, right? After one year in office, Truman's popularity was 75%. Eisenhower, 68%. John Kennedy, 78%. Nixon, Tricky Dick, 59%. There's Gerald Ford, 42, right? Unelected, but the same as Biden. Jimmy Carter, he started at 57% after one year. Ronald Reagan, 49%. Now, why was Reagan so low? We had a horrible recession during his first year in office. In fact, that recession that we had in 81 was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Yet despite that, Reagan was more popular during a recession than Biden is right now when we supposedly have this great economy. Then you had George Bush Sr., Herbert Walker. He was at 71% after one year. Bill Clinton, 54%. George W. Bush, 
all the way at 87%. Obviously, his response to September 11th had something to do with Bush's popularity, all of the patriotism surrounding the response to that event. Then Barack Obama, he was 51%, right? Hope and change. A lot of people were optimistic about Obama. So there's the numbers. Yet Biden really, apart from Trump, which isn't a fair comparison based on how much the media beat up on Trump, Biden's gotten a free pass. Why is he so unpopular? That is because the economy stinks. Now, all the experts say, well, the economy's good. Look at the numbers. Look at the GDP growth. Look at wage growth. All these numbers are an illusion because inflation is so much higher. In fact, the year-over-year increase in wages, and I forget what that number is. What is it? 4%, 4.5%, whatever it is. That's an actual number, right? Because that's not massaged and manipulated like the CPI. They just look at what the wages were and look at what they are now, and they can see the increase. So that's more of an honest number. But the inflation numbers are dishonest because they're being understated. That means real wages are actually collapsing to a far greater degree than the number suggests. And that's why the public is so upset because they're getting a lot poorer as the media is convinced that they're getting richer and as the Biden administration is trying to spin this that way, which again is part of the reason that the government wanted to lie about inflation in the first place because inflation makes the economy look much better than it really is, especially if you're underreporting the inflation rate. I mean, think about it. The GDP numbers are always adjusted for inflation. So if the government succeeds in fooling the public into believing that inflation is lower than it is, then it makes economic growth appear higher than it is. So now the government can claim credit for a stronger economy when actually all they've done is lied about how high inflation is and it allows them to take credit for economic strength that doesn't exist. The same thing is true with earnings. If they can have earnings going up and they can claim, oh, you see, you're earning more money because of our policies. Well, if inflation is rising more than wages, people aren't earning more money. Well, if you honestly report how high inflation is, they won't realize that. But if you lie about inflation and pretend that it's lower than it is, then you can lie to the voters and claim that they're making more money than they are and take credit for it. In fact, the only reason the Federal Reserve has been able to justify its ridiculously low monetary policy, artificially low interest rates, quantitative easing, all of these years is based on the fact that inflation is so low, based on the fact that it's below their 2% target. Well, what if it's not? What if it's actually above 2%? They're just lying about it. They're lying about it so they can continue to pursue these policies under the guise that we don't have enough inflation when we actually have too much. What is the odds that the Boskin Commission's findings were correct? that the CPI actually overstated inflation by 1.1%. I would say zero. It was more likely that even the CPI back then understated inflation. But let's give the government the benefit of the doubt and let's say that the CPI that we had prior to the Boskin report was accurate, right? The one we have now is not. What we have now underestimates inflation and it does it by a lot more 
than 1.1%. And of course, there are real reasons, not just cosmetic, to make the economy and the statistics look better. The government actually has hard dollars on the line from lying about inflation. Number one, Social Security. Those Social Security colas are tied to the inflation rate. So by reporting inflation lower than it is, the government gets to cut Social Security benefits, which we need to do, but no politician is willing to vote to cut Social Security benefits because they don't want to be held accountable for that vote when they go for re-election. So by lying about inflation, they're able to cut Social Security benefits without being forced to vote to cut them. So that is very politically expedient. What about TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Bonds? Those TIPS are linked to the CPI, not actual inflation, it's CPI. So if the government lies about inflation, then it reduces the amount of interest it has to pay to people who hold the TIPS. That's why I've always said that investing in TIPS is like hiring the fox to guard your henhouse. You're not actually getting inflation protection because it's the government that tells you how much inflation we have and the government is lying. So real money is being saved on interest payments on the national debt by lying about inflation. And in fact, lying about inflation also helps keeps interest rates low because to the extent that creditors believe these rigged numbers, they don't demand as much interest to compensate them for their loss due to inflation if they think they're losing less money based on a phony inflation rate. And of course, when they make the economy appear to be growing faster because they understate inflation, GDP is much bigger than it otherwise would be. And so that helps make the debt to GDP numbers look smaller than they might otherwise be. And so it gives creditors a false sense that we can handle all the debt. And of course, the biggest advantage that the government has in artificially low interest rates, which are only possible if inflation is low, is the amount of savings that the government has on interest payments on the national debt, especially since so much of the $29 trillion debt is financed with T-bills. Any increase in interest rates would bankrupt the government and interest rates would have to go up if we honestly reported inflation. So the only way to justify these artificially low interest rates, which the government so desperately needs, is to lie about inflation. So is it a coincidence that inflation is low? Of course not. The government has such a massive vested interest in reporting it low. And also look at the tax code. How many tax brackets are indexed to inflation? And so if the government honestly reported inflation, these numbers would have to be adjusted higher. So by lying about inflation, by pretending it's lower than it actually is, Congress gets to effectively impose tax hikes on the public without having to be held accountable for raising taxes at the poll. So how convenient. Inflation allows government to cut spending without the voters realizing the spending's been cut and to raise taxes without taxpayers realizing their taxes have been hiked, right? All this is done in secret, and that's exactly what the politicians want. It serves their political ends, not the public's. Another very interesting aspect of the inflation news is the way the media covers it. I mean, first of all, you've got Fox News, 
And Fox News clearly is blaming everything on Biden, on the Biden spending. And they are correct to talk about and criticize the deficit spending under Biden and the money that's being printed by the Fed. But where they are incorrect is to just assume that it started with President Biden. Take Stephen Moore, for example, who I like personally, the guy's a friend of mine, but I really don't like this hypocrisy. And it's not just Steve Moore. I don't mean to single him out, but I just happen to hear some of the things that he says. And of course, I agree with pretty much everything he's saying now, except he was saying the same stuff, but with the opposite view when Donald Trump was president, because he is criticizing the deficit spending under Biden and blaming rising prices on the money that the Fed is printing to cover the Biden deficits. But when the Fed was printing money to cover the Trump deficits and he was an advisor to Trump, he had absolutely no problem with it. He was cheering the Fed on. In fact, a lot of people overlook that the initial COVID response, the first stimulus was signed by President Trump. Donald Trump is the guy who signed the supplemental unemployment benefits where people were getting paid $600 a week in addition to their regular unemployment benefits not to go to work. This was a Republican bill. The Republican House and Senate voted in support of the massive spending in the aftermath of the beginning of the pandemic. This was wrong. This was bad policy. So how can... Fox News or a guy like Steve Moore completely excuse the role that Donald Trump played in the very policy that we're now suffering the consequences of. And of course, it didn't start with Donald Trump. Donald Trump inherited these policies from Barack Obama. And Obama didn't start them. He inherited them from Bush. We have been printing money, creating inflation for years, for decades. It's just that we're finally really experiencing the consequences in a far more profound way, given the fact that A, there's been a lag, right? A lot of this monetary policy acts with a lag. So we're kind of catching up to the inflation created under Trump. I mean, imagine how bad it's going to be when we finally catch up to the inflation we're creating now under Biden, but also the effects of the pandemic are also magnifying the monetary mistakes that have been made. But of course, the primary instigator of these mistakes has been the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is pursuing the same bad monetary policy under Biden that it pursued under Trump. Yet Steve Moore, the only time he criticized the Fed under Trump was when he said they were being too tight. They were raising rates when they shouldn't have because that's what Donald Trump wanted. Donald Trump wanted more money printing. He wanted more inflation, right? He wanted negative interest rates. He wanted bigger quantitative easing. Trump was pounding the table for the Fed to create more inflation. So now how do you come and look at all the inflation that we've got that Donald Trump wanted and now say, well, it's all Joe Biden's fault. In fact, Donald Trump himself has the nerve to blame all the inflation on the Biden deficits, completely ignoring his own deficits or the fact that he egged the Fed on and demanded that they monetize those deficits. The one time that the Fed was hiking rates, that's when Donald Trump was extremely critical of Jerome Powell. In fact, he threatened to fire him 
for raising rates, for trying to do something about putting out the inflation fire. No, Donald Trump wanted more gasoline on that fire. Well, now it's burning out of control. And somehow he says he's got nothing to do with it. And it's all Biden's fault. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you got pretty much the rest of the media that wants to completely ignore Biden's role in creating this problem. In fact, they want to pretend that inflation is the high class problem, right? That inflation is just the consequence of this strong economy. We've got this booming economy. We got a great recovery thanks to the programs of Joe Biden. He's done a great job in the aftermath of COVID. We're creating all these jobs. Consumers have more money. They're spending more money. And we just got this small little problem, you know, supply chain bottlenecks and that's it. And once we get past that, it's smooth sailing, which of course is complete nonsense. The problem is not a supply shortage. As I've said, whenever you print too much money, it always looks like a shortage of supply, but you really have a surplus of money because the Federal Reserve can print money, but they don't print stuff. The stuff that you buy with the money has to be made. And if you just give everybody a bunch of money to buy stuff that doesn't exist, well, you can claim there's a supply shortage and prices are going to go up. You see, real demand comes from supply. There's an old economic expression that supply creates demand. If you build it, then people can buy it. But just because people have money to buy stuff doesn't mean it's going to magically come into existence. So if you just increase the demand without increasing the supply, well, price has to go up. And you can't simply say it's a shortage of supply. But of course, this was obvious. This is why I criticized the government's response to COVID when Trump was president and signed the bill. I could see that the correct monetary response was a contraction. We needed less money. We needed to offset the fact that we were going to produce less, people were going to work less, so we needed a tighter monetary policy. Easy money in the face of that policy was just throwing gasoline on a fire, and that's exactly what happened. But Biden himself is basically making the same excuse as the media that, hey, inflation is a problem, but we're going to deal with it because we should be happy that it's a problem, number one, because it's a good problem because it's a result of this strong economy where people are spending and buying money. But he is promising to fix the problem. But the crazy part about it is his solution is to pass the Build Back Better bill. Now, The Build Back Better bill was initially conceived before inflation was a problem, right? Because nobody thought it was a problem. At least nobody in the Biden administration, nobody at the Fed thought it was a problem when they first came up with Build Back Better. I mean, the Build Back Better plan, in theory, is a Keynesian stimulus, right? It's where government spends more to stimulate a weak economy, right? So we're going to run a bigger deficit The government's going to go out and hire people and an old-fashioned Keynesian stimulus. Well, if the policy was conceived as a stimulus to help a weak economy grow, how could you use that very policy for an overheated economy to try to fight inflation? I mean, even Keynes would be rolling over in his grave. This violates every tenant of Keynesian economics, which of course, I don't put any stock in myself. I think the whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. But if you're going to be a Keynesian, you have to follow the policy. You can't just 
cherry pick what you want. You just can't say, hey, we need expansionary policy when the economy is weak, but we also need expansionary policy when inflation is strong. No, that's contradictory. According to Keynesian economics, what we should have right now, given how low unemployment is, even though we're not technically at full employment, unemployment is low and inflation is very high. So the Keynesian prescription for what ails the economy is contraction, a contractionary fiscal and monetary policy. So what would that be? The Keynes cure for inflation would be for the government to cut spending, not increase spending like the Build Back Better bill is going to do. That's $1.85 trillion. You don't increase spending when you have an inflation problem because the inflation is a consequence of spending. So spending more when people are already spending too much, again, it's gasoline on a fire. The other way the government has contractionary policy is tax increases. And yes, they are talking about some tax increases, but just on the very rich. And the very rich aren't spending their money. The idea behind raising taxes to fight inflation is to get the middle class. You have to tax the spending because when you raise taxes on the billionaires, they don't cut their spending. They cut their investing. They're going to keep on spending whatever they were spending before because they're only spending a small fraction of what they're earning anyway. It's the middle class that spends everything they earn. So the best way, according to Keynes, to fight inflation with tax hikes is to tax the middle class so they will reduce their spending. That is the goal of Keynesian economics is to reduce aggregate demand. When you have too much inflation, you need to reduce demand and you do that by cutting government spending or raising taxes on the middle class. That is not what the government is doing. The government is basically saying, or Biden, we've got this fiscal stimulus, which is designed to stimulate a weak economy when we don't have any inflation. And we're now going to use that very policy that was devised as a stimulus. We're going to claim it's a sedative because that's what you need. You need to sedate the overheated economy. You need contraction. And in fact, what the Fed should be doing is raising interest rates. See, these low interest rates, that is an expansionary monetary policy. You use that when unemployment is high and inflation is low. But now we've got unemployment low and inflation high, yet the Fed is pursuing an expansionary Keynesian monetary policy, the opposite of what it should be doing if it was following the Keynes prescription. I mean, you can't claim to be a Keynesian. I mean, you only want Keynesian policies when we're in a recession, but then you want to continue those same policies when we're clearly not in a recession based on the numbers. I mean, I think we're in a recession because inflation is much higher than they admit. But if you have an inflation problem, there is a Keynesian solution and we are imploring the opposite of that solution. And yet we expect it to work. I mean, think about this rationally. How is the Build Back Better plan going to reduce inflation? Well, according to Biden, right, the inflation problem results completely from supply bottlenecks. And his Build Back Better plan is going to unclog the system, right? We're going to have more capacity. We're going to invest in infrastructure, rail, ports, roads. It's somehow going to improve productivity at factories or whatever. But somehow this Build Back Better bill is going to alleviate the supply problem by leading more production 
and more distribution of goods. Well, even if that were the case, which again, there's no way it's going to happen because what the Biden administration is doing again is diverting resources from the private sector to the public sector. And by definition, the government will use those resources less efficiently and less productively than the private sector. So it's actually going to have the opposite effect of what Biden claims. But even if the Build Back Better plan was going to improve productivity and efficiency, it's going to take years for those benefits to actually materialize. In the short run, the Build Back Better plan will exacerbate the inflationary pressures that exist right now. Because before we can get the better roads and the better bridges, we need to build those roads and those bridges. We can't use them until they're built. And in the years that it takes to build them, the government is in there buying up resources, bidding up labor, bidding up raw material prices in competition with the private sector. So we have an inflationary problem. We have too much spending. And Biden's solution is for the government to spend even more. So clearly, this can't work. In any economic theory, it can't work, even in one as bad as Keynesianism. Yet nobody on the left is criticizing this. Well, the exception of Larry Summer. I mean, he's one guy out there that's saying some stuff. And Joe Manchin, actually, in the U.S. Senate as a Democrat, he's saying some good stuff, actually better than a lot of Republicans, as a matter of fact. But very few and very little criticism in the mainstream media for a completely idiotic policy. Of course, why can't the Biden administration actually propose a Keynesian solution to this problem? Because it won't work anymore. Because we have so much debt. If we actually tried contractionary policy, if we actually cut government spending, raise taxes and raise interest rates, the entire bubble would implode. That's the reason we can't do the right thing because it's impossible. We've done the wrong thing for so long. It's impossible to ever do the right thing because we overstayed Keynesian stimulus. We never took the punch bowl away. The idea from Keynes was when the economy is weak, the government stimulates it. And then when the economy is strong, the government removes the stimulus. We've never done that. We stimulate the economy when it's weak and then we keep stimulating when it's strong. And then when it gets weak again, we stimulate it even more. We never take away the stimulus. We never pay back the deficits that we incur during bad times. We just keep incurring them during good times. So the policy can't work anymore. The game is over. In fact, I think that at this point, any additional monetary stimulus won't work because I think we've got to the point where all this money printing is now bleeding directly into consumer prices in the real economy. For a while, a lot of the inflation just showed up in asset prices. So it created a wealth effect and that was acting as a stimulus. But I think now, the minute they try to stimulate the economy by printing more money, they're gonna sedate it with higher inflation. The reason the economy is weak is because prices are rising. And if they print money to stimulate it, prices will rise even faster, weakening the economy even further. So the game is over, right? It's a catch-22 now. The Fed is in this box. They can't get out. So all they can do is continue to lie, continue to look for scapegoats and different ways to rationalize away these problems and continue to kick the can down the road and hope they can make it through the next election.
No, another thing that Biden is considering to help fight inflation, he says he wants to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. What's that going to do? I mean, how long is that going to keep oil prices down? And then what? What happens when we blow through the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? I mean, basically, we would unload our oil. Probably the Chinese would gobble it up. They would just build up their stockpile. The whole point, supposedly, of that reserve is if there actually was a real supply shortage and we really needed the oil, not just to temporarily alleviate an inflation problem, which is really what we've got. But the irony, of course, of all this and the fact that Biden is now basically begging OPEC to produce more oil, drill more oil. Why don't we do that ourselves? The Biden administration's energy policy is to bash U.S. oil and gas to bash the coal industry. I mean, so to say Americans should produce less, but now beg the OPEC nations to produce more. I mean, we're all on the same planet. I mean, if Biden is really so concerned about global warming and climate change, why isn't he applauding the fact that OPEC is producing less? After all, isn't that what they want? Isn't that the whole point of the Green New Deal and all that kind of nonsense is we should have less fossil fuel? I mean, why doesn't Biden basically say, you know what? Oil prices are going up, and that's exactly what we want. We want oil prices to go up because we want people to use less oil. This is the price we pay for the Green New Deal. This is what it's going to cost to save the planet from climate change. We're all going to have to pay a lot more money for energy. And that means we're all going to have to cut back, and we're all going to have to have a big drop in our standard of living so we can save the planet. Why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he be honest? Well, of course, he doesn't want to be honest. He wants to lie. He wants to pretend that we can have this Green New Deal, that we can save the planet, that we can stop using fossil fuels, yet no one's going to have to pay more money for energy, that no one's standard of living is going to go down at all, that we're going to save the world, but not make any sacrifices. You know what? If climate change really is this existential threat, then why doesn't Biden say, you know what? We are just going to have to suffer in order to save our grandchildren from this threat because he knows that the voters don't want to suffer. They sell climate change or the Green New Deal. They package it up as some kind of stimulus, like we're all going to be richer if we have the Green New Deal, that our lives are going to get better. We're going to earn more money. We're going to have more stuff. No, the trade-off is if we're going to save the world, if we're going to stop climate change, we all have to be poorer to make it happen. Let's see how many people still support it if they understand that those are the trade-offs. And we got more bad news on how inflation is affecting the consumer with the University of Michigan consumer sentiment number for November. It actually unexpectedly plunged all the way down to 668 It was 71.7 in the prior month, and the estimate was for an increase to 72.3, which still would have been a low number, but it would have been an improvement on an even lower number. And the range of estimates was from a low number of 71.8 to a high of 73.8. So 66.8 was way below, again, the lowest number. It was the lowest number in 11 years. And why are consumers in such a gloomy mood? Well, it's inflation expectations, which are now at 4.9% for the year ahead, almost 5%. Again, remember, Jerome Powell claimed earlier in the year that what the Fed is really watching are expectations, that that's what they really care about. 
because that was the mistake that was made in the 70s. You know, the consumers expected inflation and then we had it. And so the Fed is now very sensitive to increases in expectations and they're making sure that those expectations stay anchored at 2%. Well, here they are at almost 5%, yet the Fed has done nothing to alter its policy, as I said earlier, which proves they were lying when they made up this excuse in the past. Because if the Fed really cared about expectations, well, it would certainly be changing its policy in light of soaring inflation expectations, it's not changing the policy because it can't. So all it can do is lie and pretend a problem that is big and getting worse doesn't exist. And in fact, over the next five years, consumers are expecting inflation to average 2.9%. Five years, that's almost 3%. That's well north of 2%. Why is the Fed doing nothing? in the face of surging inflation expectations because it can't do anything. That's my point from the beginning. The Fed is powerless to do anything about inflation. I mean, it could, but it would create a massive financial crisis way worse than 2008. It is unwilling to do that. The cure for fighting inflation is now fatal. So we're going to allow inflation. But of course, that's fatal too, because then it ends up with hyperinflation. So either way, we're going to die. We just have to pick the poison. And the Fed is picking the poison that kills the economy later rather than sooner, which is inflation rather than financial crisis. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the way the markets reacted to the hotter than expected inflation news because the stock markets finally came down a bit, although they didn't collapse. We had a little bit of profit taking off of record highs in the stock market. The interesting reaction, though, was in the gold market, which surged on the higher than expected inflation numbers. I think we were up about $18 on the day. And then we added to those gains on Thursday and Friday. So gold added about $45 on the week. We ended the week at $1,865 an ounce. This is what, the highest level in something like five months on the price of gold. Silver also had a nice week, closing above 25. We're now at 25.31. So gold and silver now acting like inflation hedges. And as I pointed out on my last several podcasts, I noticed gold starting to react differently to hotter than expected inflation numbers. And we continued that with the hotter than expected CPI number. And so I concluded a while ago that the low was in for gold and gold is now going to go up on bad inflation numbers, not down. The one place that hasn't changed yet is the dollar because the U.S. dollar had a very strong day on Wednesday in the aftermath of the CPI numbers. So while gold rose, the dollar rose too, which again should not happen. But the reason the dollar went up is because currency traders are still wedded to the false narrative that the Fed is going to have to taper quicker or hike sooner in the face of hotter than expected inflation. And it's that tighter monetary policy that resulted in a stronger dollar. These currencies traders still haven't figured out that even if the Fed does fight inflation, it will be too little too late and inflation will win the fight. But in my opinion, it's more likely that the Fed won't even enter the ring because they know inflation will knock them out. So why even bother? Right. They're going to pretend that they're going to fight inflation. But the last thing they want to do is actually fight and lose because now 
they've basically revealed their weak position. So it's better to keep on talking tough, right? It's the opposite of Teddy Roosevelt. If you've got no stick, well, then you better speak loudly and hope that nobody notices that you've got no stick. Well, maybe eventually the currency traders will figure out that there is no stick when it comes to the Fed's ability or political willingness to actually fight inflation. But at that point, the dollar will start going down because intuitively, what does the CPI tell you? It tells you that the dollar is losing purchasing power. So if the markets just found out that the dollar was losing even more purchasing power than they thought, right? The dollar's value was declining faster than what people thought. Why would that make the dollar more attractive and more desirable? Why would you be more interested in buying dollars after you learned that those dollars that you're buying are losing value even quicker than you thought before you got the data? You wouldn't. High inflation by definition is dollar negative. It's only positive because the markets incorrectly perceive that the Fed will successfully fight off inflation before it gets worse. So gold has already turned the corner. Gold is already reacting positively to positive inflation. The next domino to fall will be the dollar reacting negatively to higher inflation. That is going to happen. And then ultimately, the third market that's going to fall in line will be the bond market. Now, the bond market did, in fact, go down as a result of these numbers, but not nearly as much as it should, because the bond market is reacting to the fact that the Fed is going to have tighter policy. What the bond market should really be reacting to is the fact that the Fed is slipping further and further behind the inflation curve, meaning holders of bonds are going to suffer larger losses as a result of inflation. And so that needs to be built into the bond market. But at some point in time, we're going to see higher than expected inflation numbers being greeted by the markets with surging gold prices and a dumping dollar with big increases in the price of gold and big decreases in the value of the dollar and in the price of U.S. Treasuries. And when those three things are happening simultaneously, that is your indication that the end is near because the markets have finally solved the riddle. They finally figured out what's actually going on. And once they do, it's not going to take long for this whole thing to unravel. Of course, another place where inflationary pressures are mounting is in the labor market on wages. We got the JOLTS report, which once again showed a huge increase in the number of open jobs relative to the number of unemployed Americans. In fact, there are more than 2 million jobs available than the number of people unemployed. So in other words, we got more jobs available than unemployed people to fill them. Now, obviously, there's probably a big disconnect between the skills that the unemployed people have and those that are required for these jobs. I'm sure a lot of companies are having a hard time finding people who have the skills necessary or who are willing to take these jobs for a wage that could be profitably passed on to the end consumer. I'm sure a lot of people would take the jobs if the wages were even higher, but they would rather be on government benefits. I mean, even though some of these enhanced benefits have been pared back, the government still gives a lot of people a pretty lucrative deal. And so employers have to compete with the allure of having a paid government vacation. But of course, I also think part of the problem is the inflation that the Fed is creating to the extent that it's spilling into the asset markets. I think there are a lot of young Americans 
who are trading stocks through their Robinhood app or who are trading cryptocurrencies uh, and they're making a lot of money and they feel, why bother working? I mean, I can make so much money trading. There's no point in actually having a job. I mean, trading is fun. I don't have to wake up and commute into my office. I just, you know, grab my cell phone and push a few buttons. And I instantly make a lot of money. And so I think this casino-like environment that Fed policy has created is another reason that a lot of people feel that they don't need to work. And so now employers have to pay an even higher wage to get people to come back to work. In fact, I think that may be one of the reasons why a record 4.4 million Americans quit their job last month. They basically told their boss, you could take this job and shove it because I don't need to work anymore because I'm a crypto millionaire. You know, by the way, just like gold rallied initially off of the hotter than expected inflation numbers, Bitcoin also rallied on gold's coattails. And initially, a lot of people were saying, oh, you see, Bitcoin is a better inflation hedge than gold because gold's up 1%, but Bitcoin is up like 1.3%. And so gold is better. But then Bitcoin tanked. It actually fell about 8.5% in another flash crash. It went back down below 63,000 before rallying back. Before the sell-off, it made a new record high. It almost got up to 69,000. The price of Bitcoin did move back up above 65, 66,000. Then it fell down again, I think, on the news that a new Bitcoin ETF, not a futures ETF, but an actual Bitcoin ETF, that that got denied by the SEC. And so I think the market sold off again, but we're still hanging out above that 63,000 low. We're around 65,000, 64 and change as I'm recording the podcast. But what I think happened to Bitcoin in the aftermath of the inflation number is a lot of the whales who are looking to sell Bitcoin know that a lot of people incorrectly attribute an inflation hedge status to Bitcoin because after all, it's being marketed as gold 2.0, an improvement on gold. And so I think the minute we got this hotter than expected CPI number, some people who want to unload Bitcoin, I think helped manipulate the price higher. They immediately bought some Bitcoin to generate a rally that now could be publicized throughout the financial media about, oh, look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's at new highs. Bitcoin's going up. It's an inflation hedge. And so they helped generate a lot of buying interest by pumping up the price And then they immediately dumped their Bitcoin into all the hysteria they helped pump up. This is par for the Bitcoin course. Whenever you see Bitcoin price moving up sharply, there's always a big sell-off at the other end of it, which shows how highly manipulated this market is. And the real move was not the fact that Bitcoin went up and made a new high, but the fact that there were so many people waiting in the wings to sell into that new high and that the price quickly collapsed. Now, of course, it always recovers because I think the same people that dump into their pump then come back and buy a little bit more to try to stop the collapse, to try to breathe a little bit more life back into Bitcoin so that they can pump it up 
in the future and dump some more. This is really what's going on. This is wide-scale distribution from the people who got in early to the people who are now getting in late, which is why they're making such a concerted effort to bring in some institutions, to bring in sovereign nations, to try to get these guys to be the even bigger bag holders because now the numbers are so big, they've run out of individuals that are dumb enough to buy. So now they have to rely on conning in some institutions and now even government. Although it's kind of easy to get governments to buy because you can bribe them because politicians are buying with taxpayer money. So it's probably not a hard sell to be able to promise some money under the table, campaign donations, other ways of paying off these politicians in order to get them to commit taxpayer money into Bitcoin so that the whales will have even deeper pockets in which to dump their Bitcoin. Thank you.